Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And if you don't, that's all right. You can read along on the screens with us today. But 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, we are continuing our series called Exiles. Uh, The Apostle Peter in the first century wrote a letter to Christians living in what was called Asia Minor, which is today known as modern-day Turkey. And these uh, Christians were living in the Roman Empire. So Rome controlled the area at the time. And Peter is writing them to encourage them to continue to live out their faith, to continue to follow Jesus, even in the midst of such a world that had nothing to do with Christ and wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And so Peter's writing this letter, encouraging them in so many different areas of life to persevere in the faith. And so today we come to chapter 3. But before we dig in, I would like to pray for us and ask the Lord to bless us as we receive His Word today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love You and we thank You that You have brought us here together to open up the Word of God. Lord, You are not a distant God. You are an intimate God that has chosen to reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. So Lord, we believe that these are Your words. That You are telling us something about Yourself. You're showing us something about ourselves. And the hole in our hearts that that were made to long for You. So Lord, would You give us wisdom to know what it is from this passage today, as difficult as it may be to interpret in our modern minds. Lord, give us your truth and give us your wisdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in this middle section of his letter, Peter is giving practical instruction for living as a Christian in a world that doesn't accept Jesus as God or Savior. So the question Peter is really addressing is, okay, so how do we relate to this world? How do we engage this kind of culture with a people who, do, who don't believe in Christ? And so he kicked off this section of the letter in chapter 2, verse 12, by saying, you got to keep your conduct among Gentiles, and that's the word he used for unbelievers, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, Peter's saying, if your life, if your life points others to the true hope, to Christ Himself, then maybe, maybe just maybe, your unbelieving friends will notice the hope you have because of your transformed behavior, because of your transformed heart, your character. And maybe that'll prompt them to search for the same hope that you say you have. You see, it's, it's a lifestyle evangelism. Peter is encouraging Christians in this crazy world that they lived in at the time, worshiping all kinds of different false gods, right? And pagan, pluralistic, polytheistic society. Peter's saying, stay the course. And at the end, it's going to be your life and how you have been changed by this gospel message of this man from Palestine named Jesus. It's going to be your life that speaks to that unbelieving world 
your transformed heart and character. So Peter has given instruction to Christians in all kinds of specific situations, right? He, he's talked a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Christian citizens and how we must deal with unbelieving government and civil authorities. Then he moved on and he talked about Christian employees working, in, working for unbelieving supervisors and how that looks like in the workplace. And so now finally he comes in chapter 3 and he addresses Christian wives living with unbelieving husbands. And Christian husbands living and loving their wives, whether they're Christian or not, Peter addresses them as well. Now, last week, we, we pressed pause for a second, right? If you remember last week, we pressed pause at the beginning of chapter 3, and I preached a whole sermon, a, a topical sermon, on God's design for marriage and the roles that husbands and wives were designed to play within a marriage. Now, this message last week, right, was part one, so this is part two. So that served as the framework for this message today. So I will, report, I will repeat some of those points uh, briefly today, but if you were not here last week, um, I strongly encourage you to go on our website or our podcast and please listen to last week's sermon because I don't want anybody to be confused or unclear because Peter is writing very specific details in the greater context of what I preached last week, God's design and framework for marriage rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. So anyway, today we're going to look at those specific details of what Peter actually said in verses 1 through 7. Now, I told you this last week, and I'll tell you again, uh, I am leaning heavily on resources, uh, even more than much more than normal uh, for this sermon. You're probably going to hear me quote a lot of people today uh, who are much smarter than me about marriage, right? I am not a marriage expert. Uh, Christy can vouch for that, all right? You can talk to her about that. But, but I, I just want you to know, man, there's so much good stuff out there written by godly, faithful people, and uh, we're going we're gonna to hear some of that as well today. So here's, here's the main point, though, of chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, that Peter wants us to understand. If you take anything away from today, it's this. Peter is saying, your character, your character is going to serve as the best witness if you're married to an unbelieving spouse. Your character is the best witness to your unbelieving spouse. So that's, who's he, that's who he's addressing here. He's talking to Christian wives living or married to unbelieving husbands. But I'm going to set this some context here. Let's look first at what he says in verse 1 and 2. Peter says, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. All right, now this, these seven verses are filled with all kinds of challenging phrases to our modern minds. And so understanding the cultural context of the Roman Empire in the first century is crucial to understanding this text today. Because here's the thing, in ancient Rome, men had all the power and control. It was a male-dominated society. And when I say they had all the control, I mean they really truly did. Women had no power. Men controlled all the family's resources. Men controlled all of the decision-making, even to the point where if their wife had a baby 
the husband would ultimately decide if the family would keep the baby or not or give it up to become a slave. That's the kind of decision-making power that husbands had in this Roman world in the first century. In fact, there there are records that some husbands of Rome actually put to death family members who they thought were disrespecting them with no consequence to the husband. So women living in this first century Roman world did not have legal or equal legal status. Women were seen as being subhuman. And so it's an understatement to say this was a very oppressive culture for women. It was a dangerous world for them to live in. You see, that, that's the context that Peter is writing this letter. And on top of all that, on top of all those other things, women were expected to follow their husband's religious beliefs. Now, you got to remember the Roman world, you see, they worshipped many gods, right? It was very polytheistic culture. So they had a God for this, and a God for that, and a God for this, and they built magnificent temples, some of which still stand today. You could go to Rome and see these ruins. But they had all these different gods that they worshipped, and so whatever God your husband brought home and put a little statue of in your uh, living room, so to speak, that is what the wife was expected to worship. Spiritually speaking, to the Roman world, she had no freedom. In fact, The Greek historian Plutarch, uh, he said it this way at the time. This is very disturbing. He says, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. Now imagine this. In that kind of world, imagine a wife in the marketplace talking to another woman, and that woman tells her about a Palestinian man named Jesus, who claimed to be the only God. And she shares the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with this wife, and the wife believes and God opens her heart to the truth that Jesus is the one true God and that he died for her sins and that he rose again and that he's alive today and so this wife she believes this gospel of Jesus Christ and she puts her faith in him but then she has to go back home She has to go back home. And what is she supposed to do now? Because her husband forces her to worship another God. Her husband doesn't believe. But this woman has the joy of Christ in her heart now. And now she has to go back to that same environment. Do you see how dangerous this was? So Peter's teaching here The fact that he would even address this is very countercultural for the time. Any Roman who would have opened this letter from Peter as it was circulating around the first century world 
would have looked at this and read it and thought Peter was crazy. This is nonsense, they would think, because he's elevating women. He's putting women on the same level as men. Peter is. And so Peter spends more time here instructing wives in that world with six, right? If you, if you notice this passage today, there's six verses uh, instructing the wife and only one to the husband at the end. Listen, that is not because the wife needed to hear this more. That is not it. It's because Peter knows that that wife has more at risk. She has more to lose by following Christ. Because she's already living in that oppressive culture. And then when she takes it home. So Peter is trying to be careful and thoughtful and thorough to instruct Christian women and wives. Here's what's probably going to happen. And here's what you're probably going to have to do to truly live out your faith. And so he dignifies women by acknowledging their spiritual freedom to witness to their husbands. He's bringing dignity and worth to women by acknowledging that they should have the right to believe what they want. That spiritually, freak, that spiritually speaking, they are the free ones. It's their husbands who are enslaved and they don't even know it. Their husbands are enslaved to sin, but their wives are free. And so Peter addresses them as such. But at the same time, Peter knows how difficult this is going to be. And you know, I think Peter, as he's writing this, I think he knows how desperately these wives are going to want their husbands to be saved. These wives living with these husbands who worship false gods and idols, they're going to want their husbands to believe in the one true gospel of Jesus. They're going to want their children to be raised in that kind of environment. And so Peter is writing pastorally here. He's writing thoughtfully here and carefully because he knows how desperately these wives are going to want their homes to be led by a man who loves Jesus and follows his example, yet it's not happening. And so how can they live in such a way that their unbelieving husbands may be convinced that Jesus is the one true God? And that he's worthy of their allegiance. Well, notice in verses 1 and 2, Peter uses the word conduct twice, right? And this is, of course, right in step with all the other instruction that he just gave to Christian citizens, right? And how we submit to civil authority, uh, to Christian employees working with unbelieving supervisors. It's all about our conduct. It's all about our character. Because Peter's saying that it's your transformed life it's your character that will be the evidence that our hearts have been changed by the Word of God, by Jesus Himself. So the same is true in being a faithful witness to an unbelieving spouse. Yes, your spouse, if they don't know the Lord, at some point they're going to have to actually hear, right, hear the, the gospel message spoken to them in word, Romans tells us, Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing the gospel of Jesus, right? And so they're going to have to hear that message. But most likely, nine times out of ten, your unbelieving spouse is not going to be won over to Christ by having theological arguments with them, by trying to convince them philosophically why they should believe in God. And Peter knows that. He knows that's going to be true. It's true then, it's true now. So he's writing thoughtfully and carefully, telling them 
if your unbelieving spouse sees that your life has been changed, if they see that your heart and character has been transformed, that, that will speak volumes to them that no theological argument could ever do. But we look at verse 1 and 2, and we see this phrase, be subject, right? Or in the NIV it says, submit to your husbands. And, and that can disturb us at first glance. And of course, I addressed this in last week's sermon, so I just want to say again, if you weren't here, go back, listen to last week's sermon. You can get those details. But I'll give a quick summary real quick. Peter's teaching, right, it's rooted in God's design for husbands and wives in Genesis 1 and 2. So he's not just willy-nilly throwing random thoughts out there. He's rooting this in the framework of God's design for marriage. So here's real quick those points from last week. Last week we saw this in Genesis 1 and 2. Number one, men and women are equal in essence and value. Men and women are equally created in the image of God. One is not better than the other. Number two, we saw that God created husbands and wives. He designed us to complement one another, right? So where the husband may be strong or where the husband may be weak in one area, the wife is strong. Where the wife may be weak in one area, the husband is strong. God designed us that way to complement one another as we come together as one flesh to glorify Christ in our marriage. And lastly, last week we saw that God gave husbands and wives distinct roles to play within a marriage. Kathy Keller, she says, both husbands and wives get to play the Jesus role. And that's a beautiful thing. It's not just husbands that are following the lead of Jesus. It's wives that are following the example of Jesus. Husbands and wives equally are following two distinct roles that Christ himself laid forth for us to follow. Both husbands and wives are looking to Jesus as their example and playing the Jesus role. Wives follow Jesus' example as he voluntarily submitted to the Father's leadership and authority, though he was equal with God the Father, right? Jesus is no less God than God the Father. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are equally God. Yet Jesus voluntarily submits to the Father's authority in that role. Husbands, follow Jesus' example as he sacrificially leads through service and sacrifice as he did for his bride, the church, by giving up his life. Husbands, look to that example of Christ, that role that he played as a sacrificial servant leader, leading not by domineering force or any kind of abusive way, but Jesus gave up himself. He gave up his life. It was through sacrifice and service that he led. So husbands follow that role. Wives, husbands, both following Jesus and reflecting him to one another as one flesh. It's beautiful. So addressing Christian wives first, Peter is asking them to voluntarily play that Jesus role that he played, even though their husbands are not. To show their unbelieving husbands what Jesus' sacrificial submission actually looked like to point their husbands not to themselves, not to something else, but ultimately to Christ. So Peter gives some details, right? And boy, are these details, okay? So here we go. Verse 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, 
or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. All right, let me just say, for anybody wearing gold jewelry today, or maybe you have your hair in braids, please don't panic. It's okay, I promise. (laughs) Don't panic, all right? Again, Roman first century context is everything here, okay? So what is going on? Why is Peter saying this, saying here something about jewelry and hairstyles? Well, here's the thing, okay? So in ancient Rome, uh, it was basically a contest between women to see who could have the biggest, most elaborate, outlandish hairstyle. Really, it was it was wild. Uh, I mean, they would and they would basically see like who had you know the fanciest, uh, most extravagant jewelry all over them, just completely decked out, uh, crazy hair, lots of you know gaudy jewelry. And I, I mean, I'm just thinking modern day. Like, imagine you know Lady Gaga or that woman from The Hunger Games. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's Rome. That's Rome first century right there, okay? So we still have this today, right? So while the women in Rome uh, at the time were trying to outdo one another and putting all of their emphasis on that appearance, right? That's all they cared about. Peter says to the Christian wives, and uh, this applies to men too, by the way, as believers, man, we know better. We know better than to get caught up in only thinking that our appearance determines our worth, right? So here's here's what Peter's saying, right? Don't, Don't get too hung up on this. Peter's saying, look, let's not get caught up in in status symbols. Who has the most gold, right? Who spent the most time at, at, you know, Rome's finest salon, right? Let's not get caught up in those status symbols and trying to impress our friends as if we needed their validation for our true identity as a person with our fancy clothes or anything for that matter. As believers, men and women alike, men struggle with this. We all struggle with this. Men and women alike, we must be more concerned with our inner beauty in Christ, who we really are as children of God must take precedent over anything else, right? Peter's saying we must first and foremost want our transformed heart to be what people see about us, to be what people notice about us, our character, our humility, our service, our love. See, what separates Christians from the rest of the world is that we are not putting our hope in idols, right? Men and women alike, we struggle with this, don't we? We find something out there in the world and we attach our hopes and our dreams to it. And we think that whatever it is will bring us peace and love and security and acceptance. And so, as believers, we know better. We know our real identity is in Christ. Our real identity is in what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. So we cannot turn fashion or appearance into an idol. Just don't, there's nothing wrong with those things, by the way, okay? So keep wearing your gold jewelry, keep braiding your hair, it's all good. But what Peter's saying, just don't make anything, any status symbol, men or women, Don't make that who you are. 
So for the Christian wife living with her unbelieving husband, show him Jesus through what Peter calls your imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That imperishable beauty, the beauty that can't fade. Now, that gentle and quiet spirit phrase is also, you know, sometimes taken out of context and used wrongly. Well, Bible teacher Jen Wilkin, she says this. She says, gentle and quiet spirit uh, does not does not mean that you have to be quiet or reserved. It means you are not quarrelsome. A gentle and quiet spirit is one who entrusts herself to the one who judges justly, as Peter already said in this letter. But you know what? Again, wives and husbands both are following the example of Christ. Because you know who described himself as being gentle? This is not some kind of feminine characteristic. This is Jesus. This is Christ-like. Edmund Clowney, theologian, points out that Jesus described himself as gentle and humble in heart. You see, meekness, meekness, that word means strength under control. Meekness or gentleness is one of the principal fruits of the Spirit. We're all called to this. The role of the wife gives her an opportunity to display Christian love and humility in a distinctive way. But Peter makes it clear that Christian men and women are alike called to reflect toward others the meekness they find in following Christ, Clowney says. That's the kind of character. That's the kind of character that speaks to an unbelieving world. That's what Peter's saying. So he gives us an example, all right? So he, he's given us the teaching, and now he gives us an example, verse 5 and 6. This is what he says. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Whew, okay. The hits just keep coming, right? I mean, there are uh, there's some disturbing choices of words here, right, to our modern minds. But again, ancient world context, right? So again, Clowney says this about Sarah. Okay, now it says she called Abraham Lord, all right? Uh, so don't, don't freak out, right? The, the Greek word, okay, so the Greek term kurios was used in just polite address, right? So it was, it'd be like calling someone sir or mister, or think of like medieval times, my lord, my lady, right? It's nothing more than that, okay? So don't, don't get hung up there. But Sarah and Abraham's story, you may not be familiar with it, okay? But there's lots of ups and downs in their story in Genesis, okay? And what is Peter really referring to here, right? I mean, he, he's saying, okay, Christian wives, Look to Sarah as your example. Well, again, uh, Bible teacher Jen Wilkin, she says the key is in verse 6, all right? To not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter's saying, remember Sarah? Remember her faith and how she didn't fear anything that was frightening? And so Wilkin notes that Sarah's greatest fear, what, what was Sarah's greatest fear? It was not having a baby. You see, Sarah's greatest fear was not having a child. She longed to have a baby for so long. She wanted a child. And then the Lord promised her a child. The Lord promised Sarah a child. And, and finally, it happened. 
She gave birth. And now, can you just imagine? Like, can you imagine the joy that filled Sarah's heart when she held that baby in her old age? She finally had a child and she held that baby for the first time. Can you just imagine the overwhelming joy? I mean, we know what that's like. If you're a parent, you know, to hold a baby for the first time. But for Sarah, for so long, she had wished this to happen. And so her greatest fear would be losing that child. And then what happened next? God told Abraham to sacrifice that child. Now that's a whole other sermon for another day. But here's what we need to know. God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, her only son. And can you imagine how Sarah felt when Abraham said that that's what he had to do? Because an otherwise vocal Sarah, right? I mean, she's not silent. She's not quiet up until this point. She's been vocal. She's, she's said her part. But up until this point, she, and then when Abraham tells her, God wants me to sacrifice our only son, she says nothing. And she doesn't say anything because she's afraid of Abraham. She doesn't say anything because she is trusting that the Lord will make a way. She trusts God in this moment. Yes, she's submitting to Abraham's leadership, but she's doing that because she's submitting to God. That story ended up turning out pretty great, by the way. If you're not familiar with it, God provided a substitute in place of Isaac. He provided a ram to be sacrificed. So instead of calling in the sins of Abraham's family through Isaac, his only son, he let the ram's blood be that sacrifice for their sin. And you know, this wasn't some random test of Abraham and Sarah's faith as much as it was God was pointing the world. Here now in the year 2021, we're still talking about something that happened thousands of years ago. God was using that story and that situation to point the world to a better sacrifice. To the one who would give up his only son to die as a substitute for the sins of all humanity. And his blood would be spilt just like that ram's was spilt on that offering instead of Isaac dying. Instead of me and instead of you, it was Jesus on the cross for our sin. And so Sarah, Sarah trusting and knowing in that moment that God was good and all-powerful and loved her and Abraham. You see, Peter is using that story to encourage these first century Christian wives to look at Sarah's faith, to look at her character, and to use that as an example to show their unbelieving husbands the love of Christ, to show him that you truly trust God's power and you trust His plans, you trust His love, and you trust His grace. Your hope is not an external appearance. It's not in anything else in this world or any idol we could make of this world. Your hope is in something greater than this world. So Peter knows that this first century audience would remember that story of Sarah. And that would be their example to look at.
He moves on. He moves to verse 7 and addresses Christian husbands. And here's what he says. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, keep in mind, this was very countercultural for Peter to even say this, right? I mean, in a male-dominated society like Rome in the first century, Peter is telling Christian husbands to sacrifice, to serve, to love. That is complete opposite of what all the other Roman husbands would have said. I mean, you can only imagine a Christian husband, you know, hanging out with other Roman husbands, pagan Roman husbands, you know, around the city gate or the water cooler or whatever, right? And they're just doing the locker room talk, but the Christian husband knows better. The Christian husband knows there is a better way, that it's the way of Christ. And so he is trying to live according to Christ's example, not succumbing to the ungodly behavior of the Roman husbands. You see, the key The key here is understanding that Peter calls wives and husbands heirs together. Husbands and wives are heirs together. Now, why is that so countercultural for Peter to say this? Because in the ancient world, only the son, only a male could be an heir of an inheritance. But Peter is putting men and women on the same level. He's saying that wives are heirs with you. In other words, we are equal God, equally recipients of God's grace. What a, what a different way for, Christ, for Christian husbands to even think in the first century. All their other buddies would have been doing it differently. But Peter is calling these Christian men to step up and love their wives by sacrificing themselves, by serving their needs instead of some kind of domineering force. So Peter says, therefore, trust or treat, treat your wives as the heirs that they are with you. Be understanding. Show them honor and respect. And that's the complete opposite of everything they would have known. Many husbands today who are domineering or use their strength to abuse or bulldoze themselves over their wives, you know, you see, that's what Peter means, right? See, when, when Peter, and this is another one of those things we get too hung up on, when Peter says that the wife is the weaker vessel, don't be distracted by that phrase. He's talking about actual physical strength, right? Typically, which is generally true because of basic biology. Men are usually stronger physically than women, right? But I know some of you wives are sitting there thinking, I could take him, right? <laughs> but, but on a serious note, and, and listen, let me be clear. This, this sacrificial leadership from husbands is never domineering and under no circumstance can this ever be abusive. In fact, wives, if that's the situation that you find yourself in today, you need to remove yourself from that and seek the proper help immediately today. But otherwise, for the husbands who are seeking to follow the example of Christ, 
to lay themselves down, to sacrifice their wants and their desires for the betterment of their wife, to serve her and love her and sacrifice for her. For those Christian husbands, I say this, step up. Come on, man, step up and be the spiritual leader of your home, but lead by serving. Lead by sacrificing, just as Christ did for you. That is the only acceptable way. That's what Peter's saying. Show your wives the heart of Christ. As they are showing you the heart of Christ, you show them the heart of Christ in those two different ways, but equally so important. Show your wives the heart of Christ through your character and the way that you lead spiritually. See, every single believer, married, not married, wife, husband, every believer is called to point others to Christ. That's our lives. That's the whole purpose of our lives. It's to point an unbelieving world to Jesus Christ, the only hope of salvation for all eternity. Where all of this is going and leading to, we are called to be salt and light to this earth. And in this unique relationship that God created called a marriage, both husbands and wives show each other what Jesus looks like. And it's a beautiful design. Kyle is going to play for us in just a moment, but I want to say a word to anyone here today. If you are married to an unbeliever today. I'm not going to pretend like I know how hard or difficult that is because I don't. But I want to say this to you. Assuming that the relationship is not abusive in any kind of way, keep showing them that light. Keep showing them the light of Christ. Don't give up on their salvation. Keep praying for Jesus to open their heart. Keep praying that the Lord would just give them grace and help them repent of their sin and truly turn away from their idols. No differently than those first century Roman pagans. Pray that the Lord would open their heart as I'm sure you already are. But don't give up praying. I would encourage you to find a Christian friend here at Kernan who can walk alongside you and encourage you. If you're a Christian wife married to an unbelieving husband, find another woman here at Kernan who can help you and, and guide you and just give you encouragement to be a shoulder to lean on. If you, if you are a Christian husband living with an unbelieving wife, Find a Christian man here at Kernan to do the same, to be an encouragement to you, to walk alongside that challenge. Let the body of Christ minister to you in that way and encourage you. I know it's tempting for us to, to keep it to ourselves and to let it all bottle up inside, but that's what the body of Christ is for. That's what we're here. We're here for each other. We're here to bear one another's burdens 
So let the church, let the body of Jesus minister to you in that way. And lastly, I would say this to any, any spouse married to an unbelieving spouse today. I would say this. Know that your reward in heaven is great. Jesus has not forgotten you. He is preparing you for an eternal home. And I know you want your spouse to be there with you. But know that at the end of time, when you stand before the Lord, your reward in heaven will be great. Your faithfulness will not go unnoticed. I want to say that our staff, we're here for you. If you need to talk about anything going on in your life regarding this subject, we're here. We want to talk to you. We want to help you. And maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you just need for us to pray with you and just say, and cry out to God together and just say, Lord, would you open the eyes of my spouse and give them the gift of salvation as you gave to me? We would love to do that with you today. And why don't we pray now and let's ask the Lord to help us and help those who are struggling in this area today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we acknowledge, Jesus, that you are the best spouse. Lord, your bride, the church. God, you've given yourself up for us. You laid down your life so that we could find life. So Lord, there are so many in so many different, different and difficult circumstances, Lord, and I don't, I don't know how hard or difficult it really is and I don't claim to know, Lord, but you know. Jesus, you know. And I just pray that you would give them an encouragement like they've never had right now. Lord, that you would just let them know that your presence is there. That you have not forgotten them. That you love them every step of the way. You're walking with them. And as difficult as it is, Lord, you're calling them to be that light. To not stop praying. And not stop reflecting the love that you have given them. Lord, would you give them strength? Would you give them perseverance and give them faith like Sarah to trust you when things seem so wrong and things seem so out of place? Would you give them the strength and the faith and the hope that they must have in that moment? Lord, we pray for those who are lost. The ones we love the most. Lord, some of our own spouses that don't know you, we pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to salvation. Jesus, would you enter their lives? Draw them to yourself. Draw them away from the shiny things of the world that they are currently worshiping and bowing down to. Lord, turn their eyes away and fix their hearts on you as the ultimate prize. The only hope Lord, we ask for salvation. Sincerely, Lord. Lord, help us to help each other. As the church, may we always bear one another's burdens and love one another and serve one another. Lord, let us be especially careful to serve and love those in this situation. Give us wisdom to do so. We love you. We thank you for laying the example 
for both husbands and wives, for everyone, Jesus, you are the perfect example in all arenas of life. You truly are the only perfect example for us to look to. We thank you, Jesus, for being our Lord, for being our Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.